thank you for that. It was very easy. Um, good evening. Welcome to the London School of Economics. My name is Tony Travers, and I'm uh, chairing this evening's, this evening's event. Um, and this is the first of a number of uh, seminars which the Urban Age, uh, which is a project based here at the LSE, will be uh, running in the months ahead through the winter and into the spring uh, on the question of running cities. And tonight it is London's turn. I should add that part of the purpose of this evening's event, other than to hear, of course, Sir Simon Milton and to have a bit of a discussion about, or a significant discussion about London, is uh, part of the endless launching of The Endless City, the book, the huge orange book you'll see outside. And that is some of the product of the urban age, uh, and uh, which is a major project looking at cities across the world uh, supported by the Herrhausen Society. So I'll say that at the beginning. Tonight, however, the focus is on London. And our speaker is Sir Simon Milton, who is the Deputy Mayor for Policy and Planning. Sir Simon is an experienced London politician, having previously been the leader of Westminster City Council, the authority in which we are, in fact, physically located here, and in, the, in between time was the head of the Local Government Association, so has a distinguished role in public service. London, as we know, is a vast city, once the biggest city the world had ever known. It's not that any longer, but it is still a major, mature city which has been developing and changing very significantly in the recent decades. It's now reached another bump in the road. In a sense, of a phase of its development has uh, come to an end. And I don't just mean the economic changes, but we've seen the first change of Mayor of London since the office of Mayor of London was invented in 2000. From 2000 to 2008, Ken Livingston was Mayor of London, Livingston having previously been leader of the Greater London Council in the 80s. But now we've seen one of these periodic pendulum swings within the city, and the Conservatives now run the mayoralty, and the mayor, of course, as we all know, is Boris Johnson. Ken Livingston had a well-developed narrative for the city. I often say, like him or hate him, you understood what Livingston stood for. He came with a picture of the city, or it evolved, of a particularly sort of, almost a sort of Thatcherite vision for the city, heavily driven by economic development, by the city of London, and so on and the idea that that would happen, and then some of this could be skimmed off for other uses, more, more traditionally associated, perhaps, with the ex-mayor. But that world is now gone. The London plan that Ken Livingston passed and then re revised still remains the basis of spatial planning within the, which the boroughs have to fit in London, but the plan will be revised by the new mayor. The new mayor's priorities will be different from the old mayor. That's why we have democracy and pluralism. Uh, you vote for somebody new and you get different policies. I should say that we can now see these new policies will be ones that have to operate in a rather different economy, one that at the moment, uh, the shape, the precise shape of which is uncertain, but which for London in particular will have profound implications. So that's it, really. So I'm going to say by way of introduction, what we're going to do is Simon's going to speak uh, to give us a picture of the new mayor's vision for London. Uh, then I'm going to ask Ricky Burdett and Dayan Sidjic to come on stage. 
start opening a bit of a debate, and then later on we'll open it up to questions to Simon and to the other two. So, uh, Sir Simon Milton, Deputy Mayor, the floor is yours. <clears throat> Tony, thank you very much indeed, and good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you for inviting me here tonight to speak about uh, Mayor Boris Johnson's vision for London and how we intend to go about implementing it. Um, I've been working for the administration informally since the election in May, uh, but more formally as Deputy Mayor for Policy and Planning, as you've heard, uh, since the 1st of September. Uh, and I should say that for me this is a dream job. You heard uh, from Tony that I spent 20 years as a councillor in Westminster, uh, eight of them as leader, uh, and I feel passionately about cities but also about London's success. And in my otherwise entirely boring who's who entry, I said that my special interest is city management. And so I now have the opportunity to combine that interest uh, with paid work in what I believe to be the greatest city in the world and to do so in support of one of the most charismatic and inspiring figures in elected UK politics. Now, Boris uh, has always been very generous about his predecessor's achievements as mayor, uh, a generosity that is so far sadly unrequited. Uh, so we have never said that everything in London uh, was terrible or that we would just have to start from scratch. To do so would have been foolish because the truth is that London has crested the wave of an economic boom whose origins can probably be found in the UK's ejection from the ERM in the early 90s. And nowhere was that boom more pronounced than in the financial services sector, aided, it, we now know, by the government's relaxation of financial regulation in 1997, post-Bank of England independence. And um, we can justifiably argue that until the credit crash, London had established itself as the most successful city in the world. It had overtaken New York as the world's financial center. It won the competition to host the 2012 uh, Olympic Games. It is a world leader in tackling climate change, was the first major city to see a significant shift from the private car to public transport, walking and cycling, and is universally recognized as one of the most culturally dynamic centers in the world with some of the best community relations. But the economic times also masked some problems that will become apparent as the economic tide goes out. First and most obviously, we had too many eggs in the financial services basket. Now, what happens in the square mile and the wharf affects us all. Uh, a banker's bonus impacts Barnet estate agents as well as all of the other people involved in London's service economy. Now, I'm certainly not arguing that financial services growth should have been artificially constrained, but better regulation would probably have helped, but that we worried too little about the health of other sectors of the economy. It's too early to tell whether the changes to the financial sector are systemic or what the long-term impact of governments, government owning our banks uh, will be. But we do need as a city to give more thought 
to future patterns of economic and employment growth. Another revealed problem that we now need to confront are our capital's skills shortages. And this has been masked in recent years by the unprecedented growth in skilled migrant workers coming to London, mainly from the EU accession countries. And this has had an impact on both the skilled and unskilled jobs market. And as those workers uh, move on, or indeed stop coming here, which is very clearly started now uh, to be the case, we will feel the effects. It was this institution, the LSE, in its recent report on the impact of recent immigration on the London economy, which revealed that London's employment level grew by 1% in the 10 years since 1997, but that virtually all of these jobs were taken by the foreign-born workforce, whose numbers grew by a third in that period. And what is more, uh, you also found that the average international migrant has higher skill levels than a London resident. And whilst the attainment of school leavers in London is in line with the English average, it is not sufficient to cope with the skewing of London's economy to higher skilled labor. More than 50% of Londoners do not have the literacy or numeracy skills expected of an 11-year-old. It's a pretty staggering statistic. 600,000 Londoners have no qualifications at all. And this systemic disadvantage is also unequally distributed so that in some boroughs, levels of worklessness now exceed 40%. Thirdly, our economic success highlighted the strains on our infrastructure, most notably on housing and transport. Over 330,000 families are now on social housing waiting lists, according to DCLG. That's up 68% since 2001. Over 60,000 families live in overcrowded accommodation, uh, according to the National Housing Federation, of which 2,500 families are still living in bed and breakfast accommodation. And at any one time, the capital has 300 people sleeping rough on the street at night. That was during a period of boom when the sun was shining, to coin a phrase. And in transport too, despite the congestion charge, there are record levels of congestion on our roads and overcrowding on our underground stations and at mainline rail termini. And then fourthly, despite its economic success in recent years and all of the progress made in London's competitive uh, economic position, too many Londoners find life too much of a hassle. Survey after survey showed us that fear of crime is a real concern for our fellow citizens. And it is no good telling people that the city is safe or that crime levels are falling when their personal experiences do not reinforce that. They simply don't believe the crime statistics and too often feel that the police are not on their side. Add to that the growing feeling that London was becoming a tougher, more aggressive, less sociable place to live where the authorities paid only lip service to people's concerns and you have all of the ingredients for democratic change even at the zenith of the city's apparent success. 
So here we are, approaching six months in to a new administration, facing what we are told is a severe and possibly systemic change in our economic circumstances. So what are our priorities and how are we going to cope? First, I think we should try to avoid hyperbole and look at what is actually happening to our city's economy. The most recent economic indicators for London reveal a slowdown in the economy but not yet an official recession. The rate of growth of tube passenger numbers, which is a very good proxy for, uh, as, as an indicator of the economy's performance, uh, those show that that has eased, but it has yet to see the types of falls that were seen in the recession following the dot-com crash and 9-11. And TfL told me only yesterday that public transport passenger trips on the tube are up 1.7% on a year ago for the month of September and 3% on the bus network. Meanwhile, the new West End company, the retail body for London's West End, reports that September footfall, already into the, uh, the, the economic panic, September footfall was down 1.4% only year on year compared to a national drop in high street footfall of down 10.6%. The London Retail Consortium has released figures showing that sales in central London in September were down at less than half a percent on previous year like-for-like -like basis compared to one and a half percent for the UK as a whole. All of that indicates that London continues to outperform <coughs> the rest of the UK in a tough economic climate and that we start the slowdown from a strong position. House prices have fallen by 12, up to 12% in the past year on Halifax and nationwide measures, and everyone is expecting them to fall further. The recent stamp duty holiday announced by the Chancellor is likely to have a very limited impact in London because very, very few properties are worth less than the £175,000 cut-off point. And of course, global financial markets uh, remain volatile in light of the recent banking and insurance sector problems, although it is good to see that recent actions by our government and a number of governments and central banks, including the concerted actions on the 8th of October to cut interest rates, are likely to provide some support to the banking sector and the global economy. But let's also remember that London's exposure to financial services is significant. It accounts for approximately a fifth of output and 7% of employment in 2007. And we are expecting, GLA Economics uh, projects, a marked slowdown for London's economy in the second half of 2008, moving into 2009, and below trend growth will continue to 2010. Uh, employment is expected to fall for the next two years before stabilizing in 2010. Now, as an administration, our aim is to ensure that London emerges from the economic slowdown in good shape, as well as addressing some of those concerns I mentioned that were in the minds of the electorate when they voted for change on May the 1st. And there are a number of things we think we can be doing to future-proof uh, London. London's uh, transport infrastructure was by far the highest priority for London's business 
according to a June 2008 CBI survey in London, with 94% of respondents mentioning it. And given Alistair Darling's recent comments about investing in public works, uh, we will, you can be sure, be writing to the Treasury with a helpful list of projects uh, that we can work on together. Building Crossrail is our first and most important priority by a mile. It increases London's public transport capacity by 10%, takes pressure off the underground, helps regenerate the East End, and at its peak will employ 14,000 people in London on that one project alone. Phase one of the East London line from West Croydon and Crystal Palace to Highbury and Islington is another key piece of infrastructure on course for completion in 2010. Over a billion pounds of investment going into that line. It will increase capacity by 50% in 2010, higher than at present. Um, phase two of the East London line to Clapham Junction is a project we would like to see delivered. It could be delivered. It could be open in December 2011 uh, if the government were to make a decision on funding this autumn uh, for that to go ahead, and that needs 100 million uh, pounds. The upgrade of the tube network, which will provide significant increases in capacity and reliability, is a vital part of the package of improvements and must not be sacrificed by the government. We've recently had an, uh, the PPP Arbiters report, which has confirmed what many of us already knew, that PPP is a faulty model and has left London's transport improvements vulnerable. So the future prospects of London and the country in general rely on the completion of the promised work to the tube. Uh, it can't be delayed, and Londoners can't and must not pay for any more of the government's mistakes. I've already referred to the housing challenges uh, facing us. Next, <clears throat> next month, we'll be consulting on the mayor's housing strategy, which has as its objectives responding to the need for more affordable housing in what are, of course, challenging times. And we will be working closely with the Homes and Community Agency, whose London board is going to be chaired by the mayor. Um, and the boroughs will also be part of this delivery. And our aspiration is for more homes that are greener, better designed, and offer greater opportunity for Londoners to get on the housing ladder. The current economic and financial crisis has led to a virtual stalling in the housing market. And so together with the HCA, we're looking at how we could jumpstart that market by injecting public funds into de-risking projects that will give house builders the confidence to resume building. We, of course, don't have the powers to make banks lend money, but with between four and six billion pounds at our disposal over the next three years, uh, there are ways in which we think we can change the financial profile of projects that will be helpful to developers and house builders alike, and we'll have more to say about this when we launch our strategy next month. The London Plan will continue to place an obligation on developers to maximize affordable housing, but we're dropping the London-wide 50% target as we don't think it's proved particularly helpful and could be positively damaging in the new economic circumstances. Uh, the strategy will also focus on how we can add to the affordable housing stock with a program to bring empty homes back into use, <coughs> and we want to focus in particular on stimulating the intermediate housing market 
to offer greater opportunity to those Londoners who don't qualify, won't qualify for social housing, but who will remain priced out of the open market despite the fall in house values. Um, London has consistently been ranked the top European city for the availability of a highly skilled workforce, partly because of the free movement of labor that I mentioned before. Uh, but we retain, as I've said, a large pool of unskilled people. And so the LDA will be leading on the skills agenda, working in partnership with the Learning and Skills Council and the boroughs to address those challenges. Public infrastructure works alone will require the employment of 20,000 engineers. So we're looking at ways to ensure that those skills are available to us domestically. Uh, Crossrail and the Thames Tideway Tunnel have very specific requirements. We're even going to be looking, or TfL is going to set up a tunneling academy to actually train young people, get them involved in engineering. Uh, there are real career prospects in engineering, again, for the first time in a long time. The mayor has no power over schools, but we can't ignore the very real concerns over attainment that I highlighted earlier. And unless these are tackled effectively, we're laying the ground for huge social dislocation in the future. And that's why we want to bring forward a new focus on youth opportunities linked very much to our youth crime prevention priority. Young people are too often the victims of crime as well as the perpetrators. As we know, 27 young people have already lost their lives in London uh, this year. They've been murdered. There is no acceptable level of violent deaths of young people in London. And Boris feels that we need to provide greater opportunities to those who face the greatest disadvantage. And we'll be unveiling our strategy for tackling this in early November. Uh, but we will be focusing on the pressure points where so many young people currently drop out of the mainstream and on providing access back to a productive life for those who stray into violence and crime. We also welcome the radical thinking that the Conservative Party is now proposing on education and support the strategy to encourage a range of new schools of all types. And we'll ensure that we change London's planning policies to facilitate this new uh, school supply policy. And to help support this drive to improve London schools, the Mayor intends to sponsor and open up to 10 new city academies in London in partnership with other sponsors. Um, the Mayor knows that to meet the expectations of those who elected him, he needs to make progress on crime. Within the first few weeks of this mayoralty, uh, he began the deployment of 440 additional police officers and 1,600 special constables on London's buses, uh, launched Operation Blunt 2, which has so far led to the confiscation of over 2,600 knives from London streets, and launched <coughs> online crime mapping so that any of us can see for ourselves how safe or otherwise our neighborhoods are. But we believe that Londoners want to see the police being more accountable to them, and that the mayor, as London's democratically elected leader, is where that accountability should rest. So whilst we understand that some people felt they weren't as consulted as they would have liked over the future of the commissioner, we are unrepentant about the fact that Londoners elected Boris Johnson to take tough decisions to make London safer. 
No one is arguing that the mayor should interfere in operational policing matters, but we assert absolutely our right to articulate Londoners' views on policing priorities and performance, including the leadership of the Met. Future-proofing London means that we must also act now to tackle <coughs> climate change. The Mayor has already published a climate change adaptation strategy, setting out how the city can adapt to the fact that whatever we do on emissions now, that our climate has already started to change with hotter summers, uh, wetter winters, and an increased flood risk. We'll soon be publishing a climate change mitigation strategy looking at energy use and carbon reduction. Having reviewed all of the current GLA activities on climate change, it seems to us that there is scope for rationalizing and improving what we do. Too much time and money has been spent on small-scale gimmicks and pilots, and it is time to really target those activities that will make a real difference to carbon reduction. So we remain committed to reducing emissions by 60% by 2025, and to do that, we'll be focusing on what we regard as the big ticket items, uh, large-scale rollout of retrofitting people's homes, expanding the building retrofit program from GLA buildings to, we hope, the whole of the public sector in London, uh, expanding the uh, use of low-carbon vehicles in London, working with specific industry groups such as uh, healthcare, uh, schools and universities, um, the creative sector, to look at how carbon can be reduced uh, through those industries, and delivering through a low-carbon zone, um, combining these programs in specific areas to aim for that 60% target, and of course using the London plan and the housing strategy to promote decentralized energy, the single biggest and most important thing we could do to make an impact on that target and to make us all as energy efficient as possible. Our last priority, but one which runs through everything we do, <coughs> is livability and the quality of life. London scores relatively poorly compared to other cities for quality of life. Uh, Mercer HR's 2008 quality of life survey ranked London 38th behind cities such as Zurich, Geneva, Amsterdam, Dublin. Investment to improve London's livability is essential. There are few bigger issues than making it easier for Londoners to get around their city. I've already spoken of the investment that is needed in the big projects of rail and tube. But there are two other important road users, cyclists and motorists. Boris Johnson, as everyone knows, is a keen cyclist. He actually gets grumpy if he can't cycle to places. And so he sees uh, better than anyone from the cyclist point of view some of the problems uh, about cycling in London. We want to see a massive expansion of London cycle use, and so we are going to bring forward schemes that will transform the capital into a cycling city. The first of these will be a state-of-the-art cycle hire scheme, something that other cities already have, that will operate from over 350 locations in central London. Negotiations with the boroughs have already started on specific sites to locate these, 
and we'll be using technology to ensure that you can rent a bicycle easily using a range of payment methods, including your mobile phone or Oyster card. And then we will look at the opportunities to extend that cycle scheme to key outer London hubs. <clears throat> Next, we want to create cycle superhighways. These will be part of a network of key routes where the road space will be re-engineered to make the layout for cyclists easier and safer. There are many reasons why it will remain necessary for people to use cars in London. We are not an administration that is looking to penalize motor car use, whilst we obviously want to encourage people to take more environmentally sustainable options. But there is more we can do uh, for those who do have to use their car to reduce congestion. Two specific initiatives that will help are firstly a program to review 6,000 traffic lights in London to smooth traffic flow. And secondly, and for the benefit, frankly, of all road users, we will be pushing government hard to allow us to implement a permitting scheme for roadworks to allow uh, to prevent large tracts of key road space from being out of operation at the same time. We also need to make more of London's natural environment to make us a more livable city. The Mayor has appointed an Assembly member, Richard Tracy, to champion greater use of the river as a mode of transport and leisure amenity, <clears throat> and we're going to be undertaking a major greening program of planting 10,000 street trees and investing it in a program of priority parks and new pocket parks. We also want to see wonderful new public realm projects that actually get delivered rather than stay on the designer's drawing board. And we'll uh, be announcing a competitive new public space for London program shortly, because in the short time left to us before the Olympics, we want to see a sprucing up of the key visitor attractions that set a benchmark for the future. <clears throat> now, to do all of these things, we need a supportive planning framework, and that's the area of work I'm most closely involved with. Uh, the private sector plays a vital part in London. In a city where 85% of production and three quarters of employment is ascribable to the private sector, the success of our economy means that we have to ensure that Londoners have access to goods uh, and services and jobs and other opportunities. And despite the economic difficulties, the fundamental assumption behind our document planning for a better London, uh, that our population growth uh, remains the same, is, is still there. Uh, the Office of National Statistics estimates that London's population will grow by 800,000 between 2006 and 2026. <laughs> now, contrary to urban myth, this is not all about uh, immigration, immig immigration and people arriving in London to work. The bulk of this growth is going to come from natural growth, from the impact of families having children because London's population is a young population. So the London plan will need to put economic growth at its heart if this growing population is going to have access to employment opportunities as well as community infrastructure, the schools and the other facilities that they need. Central London will remain the engine of the city's economy and so we'll continue to support 
financial services, the creative industries, retail, leisure, hospitality, those services that generate jobs in the centre. But for too long, the economic potential of outer London has been neglected. Our projected population growth, that 800,000, won't be sustainable if it is based on the old model of transporting millions of people in London into the centre every day and then sending them back to the suburbs uh, in the evening. Uh, to show just how far outer London has fallen behind, you need only look at the figures for jobs created during the last economic cycle. Measured from peak to peak of the last cycle, uh, employment grew by 13% in central London, 12% in inner London, which is not generally recognised. That's actually a pretty good result for that inner donut of boroughs, uh, but only 1% in outer London. And while some outer London boroughs like Barnet uh, grew massively with jobs growth of over 20%, boroughs like Croydon, Ealing and Bexley actually lost jobs during the economic cycle. We are looking to move to a more polycentric development in future in London where people live nearer to where they work. And that's why we will shortly be announcing the creation of an Outer London Commission, which will advise the Mayor on how to change the London plan and the Mayor's transport strategy to promote the growth of new economic sub-hubs outside of the centre. And we'll continue to earmark sites with good public transport accessibility for higher density housing development. And we'll be happy to support tall buildings in the right location and context provided that high design standards are met. We also want the London plan to respond to London's unique character and the identity of its urban villages. And that means giving greater weight to heritage considerations and reviewing the views management framework to give greater protection in particular to World Heritage Sites. <clears throat> we intend to completely review the existing London plan and make it simpler more strategic, less detailed, and I hope more usable as a result. We're also aiming for a more consensual approach with the boroughs so as to minimize the impact of disagreement and delay on important schemes. In so many areas of planning, transport, waste, housing, we rely absolutely on the boroughs as part of the delivery chain to give life to mayoral strategies. So it makes no sense for that relationship to be based on conflict rather than partnership. Boris Johnson is by nature a traditional small c, one nation conservative. At heart, he believes in devolution and decentralization. And we've made a, a start with a city charter, a sort of concordat between the mayor and the boroughs. The, um, GLA Act 2007 is really the last or the latest statement on London's government mechanisms. And as people like Tony uh, often point out, the mayor's uh, powers are laid out in statute, but in reality, he has significant political power in addition to that. Nevertheless, we know that the Conservatives are intending to look again at the constitutional settlement in London should they be elected at a general election. And if that does happen, our top three suggestions for further devolution to London would be a direct London financial settlement 
to the mayor rather than separate funding streams from different government departments to different functional bodies, the abolition of the government office for London, and a significant reduction in the number of statutory strategies, try saying that quickly, uh, that the mayor is required to produce. It really should be for the mayor to decide what he or she wants to be their priorities. But these are issues for another day. Our immediate concern, as I said, uh, is London's economy. And to end on a positive note, because there are positive notes, yes, we're entering a downturn, but from a strong position. Uh, London performed well in the first quarter of this year uh, and follows on from strong growth in output over the last three years. There is a massive program of infrastructure investment on the way. Crossrail, the Olympics, tube and rail improvements, the Thames Tideway Tunnel, to name but a few. Enough work for 20,000 engineers just on public projects alone. London is our world leading in a range of industries, including the creative sector, legal services. London is our skilled and highly productive. This underlying strength will limit the damage that the real economy inflicts on London. So provided we don't overregulate in haste, there's every reason to believe that in time, our financial sector will regroup and return to growth as it has after banking panics of the past. It is within human nature to seek material improvement by trading, by exchanging goods and services, and few places historically have been better at that or at financing that than London. We need to look at the tax regime. Research for the City of London Corporation concluded that London's favorable uh, position as, uh, on, on tax and its attractiveness has been reducing. UK tax rates have become progressively less competitive <coughs> in recent years, and in addition, other important features of the tax system, certainty of interpretation, predictability, the attitude of the tax authorities are also things that are seen to have deteriorated. These are matters for government to address. But taxpayer value for Londoners is an issue for the mayor. And when times are tough, one of the things that the mayor can do to show that he is on people's side is to look at how and where we can operate more efficiently. We believed coming into office that there would be significant scope for economies across the Greater London Authority bodies. Um, and nothing we have seen so far contradicts this. So we are uh, going to be able to freeze the mayor's precept on London council taxpayers uh, this coming year uh, without trying too hard. Repeating that in future will become tougher, but it's clear that many activities can be provided just as well for less cost, and in other cases, we need to question the uh, return for London of sums being spent on activities that uh, are questionable. So the final thing the mayor needs to do to future-proof London is to extract better taxpayer value for Londoners. And provided we learn all of these lessons, uh, we are very optimistic. We believe we will get through this downturn and London will be well-placed to remain competitive <coughs> and so emerge strongly. And both the mayor and his entire administration will be working to ensure that this is so. Thank you.
now been joined up here. First, I'd like to thank Simon Milton for that uh, panoptic uh, view of London and its future. We've now been joined by Ricky Burdett, who is director of the Urban Age here at the LSE, and Dan Sujic, who is uh, director of the Design Museum and has written, also written, exceptional books on cities. Um, now, while they gather their thoughts, I'd just like to start a bit of a dialogue going up here, and then we'll address them, allow you to uh, ask <coughs> your own questions. But I'd like to begin, uh, Simon, by just saying you, you, you said there had been, or it now appeared there had been over-reliance on financial services in the past. And if London is to make up for let us assume for a while, a step down and then much slower growth in that otherwise very productive and high value added sector. Which sort of sectors would you begin to look to, to stimulate and promote? Well, I think you need to look at sectors that are not themselves reliant on financial services. So <clears throat> London's very strong position in creative industries uh, needs to be exploited. That's, that's good potential for export earnings. There's also, I think, um, great scope for us to do more on green industries and uh, green technologies. And one of the things we have as an aspiration is to see more such industries uh, settle in the Thames Gateway area. And we exploit some of the opportunities for new um, development there. So there are other sectors that are not going to be reliant where the UK can use its ingenuity, its creativity, of the workforce that we've got, <laughs> and also earn overseas income. Okay. Dan, do you want to? One, one of the things that struck me about um, Sir Simon's um, lucid account of the city is the sense that politics seem to be over, that um, there is now a sort of consensus view about how the city might, might work. And, and yet, some of the things he was also saying about outer London being neglected and inner London being a place which is creative work reminds us of course that there are different political constituencies who have different views about the city's services and, and how they might be paid for. So I just wondered if, if you might talk a little bit about what are the remaining politics in running a city. Well when I was a, a council leader I was always used to say there was no conservative or labour way to sweep a street um, and I think that a great deal of the things that have to happen in a city are non-ideological. And if you look at successful city leaders uh, in this country, but also in, in the states where obviously mayors are an accepted part of, of uh, political life, you know, you look at somebody like Michael Bloomberg and actually it's not obvious what his politics are. In fact, he's been a member, I think, of all political parties there uh, during his lifetime, is now an independent. Uh, and other uh, city mayors similarly show that to be, to run a city, actually the most important ideological uh, thing you need is pragmatism. Now, um, the, there is, of course, an issue of the inner and outer London, and it was something that uh, Boris uh, really exploited to a significant extent during the election campaign. And I think that the way we characterize it is talking about my London. For remember that most people live outside the center of London, and yet whenever people talk of London, whenever the media portrays London, they portray that kind of golden centre where all of the fun stuff happens. But there is another London, a my London, 
which is the life experience of people who don't live in the centre, who don't work in the centre, who have to experience uh, something quite different. And what we uh, felt was that it was very important to talk to those people, many of whom felt that nobody was talking to them, many of whom actually weren't sure they lived in London. They'd certainly never voted in a London election before. So I think understanding that you, there are two types of London, there are two London narratives, is probably key to understanding the difference between an inner and outer London strategy. Obviously, it's the very rich and the very poor who tend to live in the inner area, and perhaps the, those in the middle who might be seen as conservative voters who live in the outer stretch. And many of the problems that face it is, I mean, this tension between low-density suburbs and high-density high city centre depend on the whole community paying for the issues that need to support the infrastructure. And I guess some of the things that you're talking about might find you in conflict with your natural constituency. Well, I, I want to take issue straight away with your characterization of people living in outer London being more naturally conservative voters. They voted for Tony Blair three times in a row. See what I mean? So, uh, <laughs> so, so there is no party allegiance that you can necessarily rely upon. Um, but you are right in saying that there are differing views and in and out about things such as uh, development density. And what they don't like in outer London is the sense that things were being rammed down their throat without anyone really paying attention to the things that they thought were important. So that's why we want to, not just for political reasons, but also because genuinely the potential of outer London has been neglected, look at how outer Londoners relate to their city, how they are able to get about on public transport, uh, where, where their jobs are, um, where their green spaces are, and so on and so forth. Ricky, you've... Uh... Simon, perhaps predictably you might expect me to ask you to say a little bit more about some of the spatial issues and even the architectural issues, but I'm, I'm, it, it is interesting to hear a sort of restatement of what the strengths are of London and the most recent statistics of what the weaknesses are and how the city has been able to uh, absorb that to a degree. And I think there are certainly uh, the, a lot of us at the urban age having studied over the years cities as diverse as New York, as Johannesburg, as um, Mexico City, recognizing the physical structure of London, actually its, its, its real shape, its DNA perhaps, uh, a sort of an organic quality which is quite resilient. Um, I mean, you might say that the uh, Paris, for example, city that we happen to be studying uh, at the moment, with its very regular houseman grid, uh, finds it very difficult to adapt to certain changes in social and economic uh, development. Perhaps that's obviously a position which uh, reflects, as I am, uh, the view of an environmental determinist to a degree. I think the shape of our environment, the shape of buildings, uh, has an effect on how people are and how they behave. And as you were talking about uh, London and all the policies and the ideas <coughs> you have, I didn't really get a sense from you of how you would work with the physical material of London. Of course, you, and, and this is not a, a closet question about tall buildings. It isn't. I'll come to that later much more openly. Um, it's trying to, to really understand uh, how you feel as the person responsible uh, with Boris for the, f you know, the, the, the future years of, of the shape of the city. 
how you would intervene in the body of London and, and, and see a change. I mean, there are certain things which you've already touched upon. I mean, you can talk about London as being a series of villages, and I think that is true. But some are very depressed villages, and some are very exciting and happening villages. Uh, but there's also an extraordinary imbalance in London, which is um, political and to a degree even economic, of let's call it, and I'm exaggerating, a rather robust and well-off West London, a pretty tough East London, which despite years, as Tony has said often, of public investment, not just London government investment, still suffers uh, after the closure of the docks and everything else. So I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about you. Given all these policies, what might change? What would you like to see change, literally, in the shape of London? There's some, you, you talked about, uh, I mean, it was very interesting when you were talking about the implication that you would like to see effectively less commuting. Right? Less, less commuting. Yeah. Yeah, so reduce, therefore, that implies more housing in the center. On the other hand, you seem to be dropping or abandoning the affordable housing quotia. Does that, is that an issue? You talked about high density, but you also talked about quality and how does one police that in, in many ways. Those are all interrelated issues, which I'd like you to get, you know, in a way, you run a borough in London which has extraordinary qualities. Westminster is uh, Is the whole of London going to be like Westminster? Uh, no, uh, I, I, I fear that's not going to be the case. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think we will, um, I think there's an interesting philosophical point here, which is the extent to which one can and indeed should seek to place an imprint, a, a, uh, a model for the city, uh, for London to follow, for the very reason that you said in your first few comments, which is that London is an organic city, which I think defies attempts to sort of housemanite it. And you know, I came from a conference earlier today where you know people were posing the question, what will a Johnson London plan be different from a Livingston London plan? And I just thought to myself, you know, a lot of people, you know, feel the need to have ologies and isms about politicians, and actually, when it comes to planning in London, that is not the way we see things. So I don't think that we are going to set out a blueprint which will change the way about how we believe London should look. There are some basic things uh, that have to happen. We need to regenerate the eastern side of London. The Olympics is a great catalyst for that, but there are other things that need to happen outside the immediate Olympic area. We said that we would like to reduce the need for everyone to commute into the centre of London by having more economic sub-hubs. That's not about increase necessarily turning central London into a residential area, but it is looking for more commercial development outside of London, because central London, as I said, will remain uh, very important as the engine of both the, the cities and the UK's uh, economy. Um, and we are looking to see more housing development because of the population growth, that underlying driver which I mentioned. So there are various things that we have to respond to uh, as a city authority, uh, but without, I think, trying to artificially impose a straitjacket or constraints on what development should look like where, other than following some what we think are pretty common sense rules. Which are? That buildings should meet, suit their context that we should have exciting new architecture, uh, but that it um, needs to respect the character of the area in which it's 
uh, being built that we should look to regenerate deprived areas of London. I mentioned before uh, about the uh, lack of economic activity in Croydon, somewhere which has traditionally been seen as an important commercial centre. We would like to see Croydon uh, expand and develop its economic base. Uh, we are therefore very open to giving uh, and encouraging significant new development, uh, new buildings, new architecture, taller buildings in that part of London because it is right for that part of London. But you know, there is no every part of London has its own identity, and we have to respect that whilst at the same time looking for ways to accommodate the population and we hope economic growth that the city will continue to need. Can I um, just pick up the thought there? I mean, clearly the uh, Boris uh, has signalled that he wishes to give the boroughs more, uh, I mean, to, to allow them slightly freer reign than his predecessor. And yet he's also signalled, although you've been careful this evening, not to go too far down the road of saying you're against tall buildings, but I'm going to introduce them even if um, Ricky doesn't. I mean, the, is, is there, there, there will be an occasion, will there not, when a borough wants to build one or more tall buildings, which City Hall doesn't want. Yeah. And won't these two policies then <coughs> rub up against each other, the policy to give the boroughs more power and more freedom and autonomy, <coughs> rub up against the power not to have inappropriate tall buildings in particular locations? Yeah, but I think to single out one policy where the mayor has views and to say that therefore negates the whole... No, no, uh, I'm not saying that. I'm just actually picking no, on... No, well, there will be. I mean, there is, I can think of a scheme uh, in a borough where uh, uh, a tall building has been proposed, which, in the mayor's view, would have uh, jeopardised uh, a World Heritage Site, the Tower of London, as it happens, and has sent a signal back that uh, it's, it would be unacceptable at the stage one, which is where you, you feed through your initial comments. And, you know, I'm told that that building is going to come back significant shorter. So you know, that is the role of the mayor as a strategic uh, planning voice. But it will, the, the number of times he intervenes uh, to stop a borough taking a decision for itself, he has said will be sparing. Okay. I'd like to, I don't want to stop uh, Dan and Ricky if they have particular thoughts and we'll come back to them at the end. But any, anybody, a question from the audience now? Right. Um, I'll take them in the order they came up. Could you say who you are and uh, rough, yes, you first, then gentleman here, then here, and say roughly who you are and where you come from. Uh, my name is Mark Nick, Nick Wilson, um, a fellow at the LSE, but in management. Um, I wanted to ask Simon. I live in Pall Mall, Simon, oh. and I think. Oh, I'm sorry, it's somebody. Can, I'm looking at one. Oh. No, you're no, go on. Come on. I've started. So. Where, where are you? Keep going. Keep going. I can't even see. Keep going. Uh, sorry, I think you're pointing I was up looking here. here. I was looking here. I'm so sorry. My apologies. You. And I'm sorry, sorry I, you too. I didn't Keep mean going. to. Uh, uh, to uh, take somebody's position. Um, I live in Pall Mall, and I think basically there's about 40 residents who live in Pall Mall, including uh, the heir to the throne. Um, St. James used to be a, uh, what's still known as the gentlemen's sort of clubs, and I mean the traditional form of gentlemen's clubs area, and it's a beautiful area. I can go jogging, I go 100 yards into St. James's Park, I can go into Green Park, um, the other parks. I have the most fantastic facilities but, um, and I can, I can literally get to, for example, St. Paul's Cathedral and view St. Paul's Cathedral for an hour each evening. On the other hand, for many of my friends who live in outer London, who can't afford to live in London, 
they literally spend all their time commuting to Woking, to Croydon, to wherever, and uh, the benefits that you and I have um, are not able to be taken by other people. I served as a city councillor in Australia trying to, to protect uh, an area very much like sort of a Hampstead Garden suburb area, and I've come to the view that literally, in terms of London, that view was wrong. And what I find disappointing is that essentially you don't seem to be saying, let's allow the market to determine what should happen to London in broad terms. You seem to be imposing a very strong, large sea view of the world, which unfortunately I don't think is the one that we should be following. And I would ask you to, to literally just take a clean slate of paper, put aside what you and Boris said in terms of the election, and think again and think about the long-term needs of London because I think if you don't, I think you will ultimately be a failure as an administration because you won't be dealing with improving the quality of life that I have and which you, you are able to have, I think, living near Regent's Park, but which so few people have. Thank you. Okay, right, we'll pick one or two up. Um, the chap down here who, uh, sorry, I thought I was looking at you and he was speaking. Right, your turn. Hello, my name is Mark Flessing and I help run uh, a company called Pocket that actually builds uh, intermediate housing uh, without, without subsidy and, and uh, as Simon knows, uh, we've, we've had some success uh, recently getting projects into the market uh, and, and selling them uh, uh, to uh, uh, people on, on, on low to moderate incomes. Um, I'm, I'm therefore very encouraged, obviously, to hear you say that the mayor wants to give particular priority to the development of the intermediate housing and how the private sector might work with uh, the mayor in delivery uh, of that housing. Uh, it is nevertheless the case that uh, the overwhelming majority of planning consents are, are small-scale projects in London. You know, we can have long discussions about tall buildings, but 70% of what goes in front of a planning committee uh, is 20 units or less. Uh, it's equally uh, the case that where you're dealing with very small developments of private housing only, there tends to be not a lot of debate, uh, large regeneration schemes uh, eventually go through because there's so much money attached to it. So it's those very uh, uh, medium-sized schemes that are capable of delivering intermediate housing that get caught up in the planning system more than any other uh, scheme. And the average uh, period from conception to delivery of our developments is three to four years, which is far too long. Uh, uh, to create a, a market response to the need for intermediate housing. If you then parallel with that uh, 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 the idea of localism uh, and uh, 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 giving local authorities uh, more say uh, in planning uh, 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 as to what should be happening, then I think there is a potential problem that you're going to have to try and, and resolve in, in, in the years to come. Um, the planning system at the moment is already incapable of delivery of these vital projects, giving more say to the local authorities seems to me could potentially uh, delay things even further. How are you going to square those two tensions? Okay, intervene to, over, uh, to, to speed things up, I think that one comes to gentleman here and then one there, then we'll give you an answer, a chance to answer. <coughs> Chap in the middle here. Uh. Thank you, my name is Mayor Hillman, I've been a mayor next week, it'll be for 77 years rather than Boris, who is, will only have been a mayor for five and a half months. Um, I say that as a prelude to saying something extremely important, and I'll be as brief as is possible in the circumstances. The overriding issue facing the world is climate change, briefly referred to by Sir Simon, 
but in fact the overriding issue which will dictate whether we like it or not <coughs> every aspect of what Sir Simon was talking about whether it's housing, whether it's the transport system or whatever the goal of uh, uh, the new administration is to have a 60% uh, reduction in carbon emissions by 2025 it, that may sound ambitious but if you look at what the climate scientists are saying about the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, we know full well that that reduction by 2025 will result in the concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere being totally out of control with the future uh, uh, in a dire state, a legacy for students here and their children and their grandchildren, absolutely appalling. In other words, the targets are inadequate. One cannot talk about the future of London or indeed of any city or indeed of any uh, 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 urban development or rural development without it being seen strategically against the background of climate change. The implications of that are vast. Certainly, they will not allow for us continuing to talk about economic growth. Economic growth is too closely tied in to the use of fossil fuels. We can cross our fingers that technology will ride to the rescue. So of course, it will make a small a, contribution. Do you want a bigger target? Is this too important an issue for no, me no, to No, 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 I want to. I just want to allow others a chance. So could you kind of bring it to a question, or if you could? Well, the, the it, it's, it's more, in, uh, as you rightly surmised by your question to me, uh, or request to me, it is more in the nature of a statement. I okay. do not see, and I wonder what Sir Simon uh, is thinking, is it a coincidence that he didn't mention in his presentation uh, the fact that the issue of tourism, is it a coincidence that he didn't mention uh, the growth of flying, the growth of London airports to cater for that tourism? tourism, is it a coincidence that reference to the Olympics uh, was made without seeing in that in context that the whole concept of the okay. Olympic movements requires hundreds of thousands of people flying around the world, the most right. devastating activity that human beings I'm have not, managed it's to not, I don't up. think it's important, but can you, can you just sort of, uh, we, I think I'll, we've got the, point. Got, the point. got the point, we've got the point. I promise you, I promise you I'll make him answer a question allied to that I'll, point. I'll, I'll, can I Five seconds, five seconds, go on. It's, it's very important. Uh, by next year, the world must have decided on the concept of equal per capita emissions of carbon, equal per capita across the world's population. That will inevitably be introduced. The concept of carbon rationing is one that will prevail. It's already been widely recognized around the world. When it does, then it will have these wide okay. impacts that I'm talking about. Uh, what my last point, very quickly, uh, it's, it, it's just too important. I refer you. You're going to get, you I, see, you're going to get, have not, to stop. That's not barricade. Um, that it's my not last applause. Point is that I refer you to the book on carbon rationing, which is my penguin book. All right. Called How, okay. I'll give you £100, and, and maybe that's a well. I'll give you £100 if when you buy it and read it, you don't think it was worth it. All right. Let me know. That's a challenge, right. Now there's a chap here, the third and the fourth, please try and make this a shorter question, that's a good chap. Uh, one more in here. My name is John Preston and guess where I'm from, it's called Croydon, which has been much mentioned Dear this Croydon. evening. Um, I want to reinforce Sir Simon's point about decision making 
as in terms of Boris or the mayor having more total control or central control of money flowing in from various parts of government. The theme really is money. We have two money problems in Croydon. One is the Croydon hospitals where we depend and have depended for 60 years on money coming through from central London for a new hospital which hasn't yet happened. And the other is that we wait for Scotland and the labour marginals before we get money for education. And when Croydon started off when I was a boy it was a county borough and it had something like 60% of its payment was raised locally. Business paid for Croydon as well as the local rates. Now it's down to 5 or 6% with a high dependence on government money. So I would like you to see if you can reverse that, particularly from a London perspective, so we don't have to go cap in hand to Westminster in various factions, wasting a lot of the time getting the response quicker, and particularly due to the last question, if London can control its destiny, we want rapid response decision making. Okay, four questions there. Okay. I think you did touch on the money issue. I, I, I will, I will um, deal them in, in reverse order. Uh, firstly, I think, you know, I've, I'm a, a devolutionist decentraliser. I spent a year as chairman of the Local Government Association trying to persuade government that the current system of local government finance in this country was bust, uh, that it was actually bad for democracy, that it infantilised councils and communities by removing responsibility from them. And the way to restore that would be to make localities much more dependent on their tax, for, responsible for their tax base and dependent on it. And that is something that would benefit uh, all of London, it would benefit Croydon. So I agree with you, but I think that um, the current government, for all its desire, I think its, its uh, inclination to want to devolve has probably got as far as it's going to go. It would be interesting to see whether a Conservative government's uh, actions would match its rhetoric, uh, which oppositions uh, are always pro-devolution when they're in opposition. Uh, when they get into government, it often changes. Um, Maya, um, I didn't mention all the things that you raised simply because within the constraints of uh, time available, I couldn't. Uh, but, you know, you may say that the mayor's target is uh, unambitious or not sufficiently ambitious. It is actually one of the most ambitious targets of any city, which does not mean that we shouldn't go further. The 60% is doable. It is achievable with the technologies that currently exist. But it does require action from government as well as regional government. One of the most important things that we could do, actually one of the biggest impacts would be of decarbonizing London would be to have a significant growth in decentralized energy. That requires government and the regulators to uh, make the tariffs around energy much more flexible to enable that to happen. So this is not something that is within the, within the gift of the mayor alone. Um, I, I hear what you say about the Olympics, I'm afraid. <laughs> Uh, it is not uh, our desire to cancel the Olympics uh, for 2012. We don't think uh, that would help get us re-elected, um, regardless of the uh, impacts of carbon. And, and on flying, well, it, I, th I think that if you look at the statistics, and I'm sure you're going to tell me I'm wrong, but the statistics I've shown um, s say that you know, for all of its impact, actually air travel is less significant as a carbon producer than many other forms of activity 40% of London's carbon comes from its buildings, which is why retrofitting buildings, home insulation, all of these measures are the things that will make the quickest return. 
uh, but we need to constantly look at these targets and of course the government has just changed the national or announced the national target of 80 percent by 2050 and uh, cities are going to have to respond to that uh, to Hang on, hang on, hang on. You've had your... mm -hmm. to, uh, to Mark, um, I, I, I think that uh, we are keen to see the intermediate housing market expand. One of the things that uh, we'll be doing, and this also is a partially a response to, to Nick's first question, is looking to expand the opportunities for part rent, part buy, and for home ownership to many more people. Uh, at the moment, there is a, a £60,000 household income limit, which uh, is the limit for getting involved in intermediate schemes. That has not changed since it was first introduced a few years ago. So during that period that the London housing market exploded, where the average house price in London is nine times the salary of the average employee in London, uh, we need to do something about that. And uh, the mayor had a meeting with the housing minister tonight, which I'm hoping will result in us being able to devise uh, intermediate schemes that will actually do much more for Londoners uh, than we can currently do at the moment. And finally, to Nick, I've, I found your points, well, I, I disagree with you strongly, as you'd expect, about whether our administration uh, will be a failure or not. Um, but you said that we were, we were a big C, uh, we're trying to be a big C administration by uh, interfering in the uh, planning system, where, of course, a, to me, a big C administration would be to let the market rip and see what happens. Now, I don't believe there is any significant democratic desire on the part of Londoners for that to happen. Um, I think that people value very much the things in London that you talked about, but of course we have to do more to, in, to include those people who are excluded at the moment, either because they cannot uh, find housing, uh, they cannot get on the housing ladder, or they cannot find houses to rent, which is why uh, we are going to be making a big deal of our housing strategy uh, all because they're excluded because they can't uh, get into London because it's such a, a hassle to commute. You know, I don't really see that the things that we are seeking to do will mitigate, mitigate against any of that. It's actually the direction we're driving in. So I'm left a little confused by your assertions. I, I just don't think it hangs together. Okay, now let's take one or two. There was a one here, and then right at the back, and then we'll come to over here. So, right. Thank, thank you, Tony. Terence Spendixon, Secretary of the Independent Transport Commission. Uh, I'd like to ask Sir Simon uh, a question. Does he accept that there's a strong distinction between tall buildings for office functions in the city or in Canary Wharf and tall buildings for residential functions? at places like Lots Road and um, Clapham Junction, does he accept that residential tall buildings compared with lower ones are very much less sustainable? They require huge foundations, um, massive concrete and that sort of thing, and then in the course of use, all of their lifts and other machinery and pumping up water make them much more expensive in energy um, on, um, on their use side, and then that finally, um, because residential towers tend to be in residential districts, they are bad neighbours, they are out of scale with their surroundings, and so on. Thank you, Chuck. Okay, I think we know where you're coming from, Terence. Um, and there was a, 
Woman at the back. That's right. Yep. And then man here in a white shirt. Next. Hi. Yep. Hello. Uh, my name is Lane Doody. I, I studied at LSE, but I now work for ARA. Um, and I had a question about the um, transport policies. Um, you mentioned that, uh, I think, three classes of road user, um, public transport, um, cars, motorists, obviously, and cycling. But you haven't mentioned a fourth class of road user, which is pedestrians. Um, and obviously, pedestrian, encouraging walking is important from you know, climate change and sustainability and health, uh, and also social reasons, because the people who tend to be pedestrians are often people who don't drive, such as children and um, old people. Um, so I was wondering, how do you plan to balance the needs of all those, all those road users, given that they are sometimes in conflict with each other? So for example, you mentioned that you are going to um, change the timings of, for 6,000 traffic lights. And from observation, I've noticed that often that means that the length of time you have to cross the road is reduced. So, um, so just to yes, just to ask you how, how you how you plan to balance those those uh, the needs of all those people. And to the previous mayor was making a big push for pedestrians. So will will the new one? And then there was a man. That's right, white shirt, pen. Um, hello, my name is Angus Laurie. Um, I'm an LSE alumni and I'm now working as an urban designer. Um, you mentioned a few things in terms of actually responding to Ricky's question. Um, and that is about, you mentioned in terms of architecture and urban design, you were talking about sort of architectural character, the, um, the quality of a building, whether it's you know, an exemplar building or w whichever. Um, you didn't really respond to, I think, one of the things Ricky, I think, was mentioning was about land use and about um, actually reducing commuting uh, and also um, you know, creating a more polycentric uh, urban structure. Um, and also, you were mentioning other targets such as um, reducing youth crime and, and other things. Um, will you, how are you going to look at y uh, land use in terms of trying to solve uh, some of these problems? Or are you looking at kind of uh, a land use, developing a land use strategy for, for London within the new plan? Okay, not to make the answering more difficult, uh, Simon. Oh, well, yes. Uh, well, hold on. I'll ask Ricky. Uh, tall buildings, are they as um, environmentally disastrous as uh, Terence says? No. thought you might say <laughs> Why do you say that? Don't just turn the whole thing into no, tall buildings evening, but go on. T tall buildings can uh, have an enormous impact on issues of density. Density has an enormous impact on the footprint of transport and mobility and uh, the possibility of the city being more efficient. So I think one has to consider that, not just the, the issue you've just described. I think as it happens, buildings can be designed. We don't want to get into a technical discussion here. And a lot of tall buildings, such as the Commerce Bank headquarters in Frankfurt or others, to actually contribute uh, to uh, the production of energy through a whole series of systems. So I, I think um, it's more complex than you say. Anyway. <coughs> right. Um, yeah, on, on uh, tall buildings, I, I'm not sure that you can easily make that distinction between commercial good, residential bad. Uh, that you did because there are there can be examples of uh, high quality effective uh, residential tall buildings but there are other things that the London plan um, says are important so if you're going to have significant number of, of homes uh, for, for people then you need to look at things like uh, play space for families uh, tall buildings are often not suitable 
uh, or might not be suitable for families. We all know of the things that went wrong with the use of taller buildings for social housing in the 60s and 70s. Nobody wants to go back there and repeat those mistakes. But um, just because a tall building might be for residential does not mean that the mayor would be opposed to it. And actually, the mayor has been, so far, extremely liberal in what he uh, lets get through. I mean, there has not been a single planning refusal yet in the five and a half months since uh, Boris was elected. So he is not, he does not have a strong prohibitionist views, but where things clearly seem wrong, he will uh, step in. Um, as Elaine, the... Um, Simon, can I just say, I mean, there are children in Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> but there are also children in Newham and Tower Hamlets. No, sure. But that places who've had a no. disastrous experience in high-rise no. uh, developments. I think one should agree that perhaps that's simply to do with the way these buildings have been designed. poorly designed as opposed Absolutely. to the fact that they're tall. Well, that's why I, I said no. I've rejected the thought that no, resident, no, no. commercial good, residential bad. Um, uh, pedestrians, uh, as an important road user, absolutely. I apologize I didn't mention. There are lots of things I didn't mention tonight that I could have done. Um, the the uh, transport strategy will continue to talk about the importance of a better pedestrian environment. Some of the things that <coughs> we are keen to do is to extend the legible London scheme, which some of you may be familiar with, which is a really high-quality design uh, product for wayfinding in central London. It's a prototype uh, being developed, but we now want to extend that much more widely. Uh, some of the public realm improvements, uh, everyone always refers to the Kensington High Street uh, experiences, high quality urban realm uh, and high quality design for the urban realm. We want to see more of that. We want to see getting rid of those railings and the sheet pens which we, into which we herd people when we, uh, they need to cross the road. So all of that uh, will be part of uh, the Mayor's thinking. And as far as traffic lights are concerned, um, Transport for London have looked at this and they are absolutely convinced that they can rephase traffic lights without causing difficulties for pedestrians. So clearly if uh, th that assertion will need to be tested, but their view is that there is significant leeway to rephase lights without creating a dangerous or unfriendly or intimidating environment uh, for pedestrians. Not at every junction, clearly, but certainly at a significant number of junctions. And then finally, um, uh, Angus wanted me to say uh, a little bit more about um, uh, land use and, and in particular uh, youth crime. I mean, <coughs> I said in my introductory speech that we are looking for uh, more polycentric development, which means that we will need to have a land use policy which uh, looks at where you have commercial, where you have residential. Um, on um, a land use for community protection, I think that is a, uh, an interesting new dimension that we are considering. There is no currently uh, security land use, and funny enough, this has uh, arisen in an application I'm looking at at the moment, um, which I, I won't say where, but where uh, on, on what is industrial land, there is a, a, a possibility of uh, the Metropolitan Police having wanting a building for policing use. Now, does that fit in? What, what use class does that uh, fit under? It's not clear, and so we are going to increasingly be looking at making sure that we are able to have the facilities on the ground for a safer London. And that is also tied 
to the need of the Metropolitan Police Authority to have an overarching review of its assets and property strategy where there are lots and lots of old Victorian police stations, uh, buildings that are not fit for purpose, where what modern policing needs are shop fronts and um, sites in communities. So we are going to need to look at these things as part of our land use strategy. Okay, uh, take two more short questions from the audience, one there and one here, right at the edge, you see up. Thanks, Tony. Chris Brown from Igloo Regeneration. Um, I'm interested in the relationship between the mayor and the boroughs. Um, do you see it as a reactive relationship waiting for planning applications to come across your desk? Or do you see it as a much more proactive relationship where you engage with the boroughs? And if so, is that at a political level or at an officer level where you send GLA officers out to engage with the boroughs or is it a combination? My name is Mark Atkinson. I'm also a Cities Program uh, alumnus and uh, an urban planning consultant. Uh, you spoke about uh, diversifying uh, the economic base of London and as an example of a sector with uh, potential, uh, you mentioned the creative services. Um, I'm uh, aware of uh, several creative services companies which are moving operations, creative operations, to places like Amsterdam and Barcelona because it's just too expensive to keep them here in London. And that also would impact uh, on your idea of being able to export those services because the high expense here in London uh, will make them difficult to export. I suppose it may be getting cheaper at the moment. I mean, I see the point. Ho hopefully, it's getting hopefully getting a bit cheaper will, at the moment. It may get quite a lot cheaper, but okay, fair question. Um, okay, so do you want to address those yeah, two? Yeah, um, firstly to, to Chris. Um, there's a, a huge amount of engagement between the mayors and the boroughs, and it's certainly not just reactive. Um, there is a deputy mayor with a responsibility for borough relations, Ian Clement, and he is uh, literally his working his way through all of the boroughs, often with me, uh, meeting the leaders, the chief executives, the significant players. In addition, we are very keen and are getting out to boroughs for visits, and I'm, when I go, I take Transport for London with me, I take the London Development Agency with me, and we go and look at opportunities for regeneration sites in parts of London to see what we can do to unlock things. In the past, there was, I'm afraid, um, not very much or not enough joined up thinking within the GLA because that very often you need to engage not just with the GLA, the planning people, but you need to have TfL agreeing to do their bit and the LDN. So we're trying to develop that approach to offer a kind of joined up seamless way into the organization and to go out and proactively look at sites. And I think next week alone, I've got three visits out to different parts of London looking at stuff with the boroughs, going around with, uh, you know, having them take me around the things that they're interested in and talking about uh, what we can do together. And as I said in my speech, there are things that we need to deliver through the boroughs. So we have a shopping list of stuff we're asking boroughs to do to help us deliver, whether it be finding sites for cycle stands, signing up to affordable housing targets, uh, a range of things. So there is a lot of engagement. Um, and on uh, Mark's point, I think Tony actually answered it. I mean, the, one of the um, effects of London's economy overheating in the way that it did was that property prices went through the roof. 
London became the most expensive city in the world. I think it overtook Tokyo at one point for rents. Uh, that is now changing. Um, we are, uh, you know, we are going to see, or we have already seen, office rents come down significantly. And, but uh, you know, for the creative industries which like to cluster together, uh, you know, there are parts of London which have traditionally uh, been that where you're not going to create more land. So there is no more land in Soho. So what industries have done have moved north of Oxford Street to what some people call NoHo. Um, and there are attempts to set up creative clusters in other parts of London. So yeah, these things will wax and wane. Um, I think that London will remain an attractive place for people to want to live and work. At least that's our intention, that it should remain so. And because of the fact that you know the, the property cycle meant that people have started to look for cheaper accommodation doesn't mean that the London won't attract them back at some stage, but there still <laughs> remains a significant uh, industry base to build on. Okay, we're moving towards the witching hour of eight, so I just want briefly to ask Diane and Ricky to, um, exactly, wouldn't want to be presumptuous enough to, as it were, to give the mayor advice uh, while his uh, deputy is here, but on issues to do with planning and design, what you've seen in cities around the world, what, if you were gently giving advice on design, planning that you've met in all these world cities, what would it be? We've just gone through... What to do and what not to do, sorry. We've just gone through 10 years of absolutely astonishingly rapid physical change, coinciding with the invention of this extraordinarily un-English thing, a directly elected mayor, which has produced all sorts of aberrations. Who would have thought that... Uh, a a mayor of London would actually be going to court to defend his choice of a sculptor for a piece of public art in London. Who would have thought that a, a British directly elected mayor would decide that London needed the tallest building in Europe and actually make sure it was possible by um, taking space in it for transport for London? Um, we're now at a period, in fact, when because of the shifting ba ba uh, balance of advantages in the world, London is going to be having to be fighting for its position again as a as its dominant city. Its confidence has taken a big knock. It came from a period when it seemed to know what it was doing. Um, and that usually is a time for mayors who are boosters. But I don't think our current mayor is a natural booster. He has um, enough skepticism. So I think we're looking for a smarter, more sophisticated approach to how we make, how we make the city look and operate and its approach to quality. OK. And I'll give you a chance to come back. And Ricky? I think, I mean, you started, Simon, with reminding us that, yes, London is a city which has done well and continues to do well, but also those bracing statistics, 600,000 people who are not qualified, uh, number of children still in poverty, etc. I, I think the only um, words that one could um, ask you to consider at this point, in the light of, let's call it our global knowledge through the urban age, is that when times are hard, there, there tends to be um, uh, an easiness to just let things happen um, and not really look at the social consequences of spatial decisions, the social and economic consequences of spatial decisions. I mean, we could say, and we're nowhere near those extremes, that in Mexico City or in um, Sao Paulo, in uh, Johannesburg, what we're seeing is the construction of a city behind walls of exclusive environments of gated communities, etc. Now, in London, we've been there before a bit, uh, when laissez-faire allowed the Thames to be 
grabbed by developers who turn their back to the city and all that. So uh, I think since you mentioned that quality of life is something actually lagging behind all the other good parameters, I think more thinking through perhaps at the center of uh, your administration, which you, you've begun to say these things, that the quality of the environment, which can be broken down into a number of issues, and I'll just finish with that, that the quality of the environment can have an impact on uh, people's lives more so than just uh, on the basis of um, uh, planning issues, but near the, getting close to the soul, let's call it that. That's why I was curious to know what your feel was. And I think here, public space is really central to it. London's public space really is pretty poor, given uh, where we are in terms of international other statistics. Um, and I was heartened to hear that you are beginning to look at that. I think the role of culture in the city, uh, not just for the constituencies who live here, but the constituencies who come and visit, is significant, and how the environments around those institutions are sort of dealt with uh, is important. And the last thing I would say is, when you come to London for 2012, everything, of course, within the red line will be wonderful in East London. That will be fine. But I've asked myself, what's it going to be like getting out at Heathrow and driving into London or coming by train? What do you see? What happens at St. Pancras Station when you come out of it? I think those are opportunities there to uh, requalify some of the spaces of the city and going back to one of your core constituents in terms of the election, requalifying the suburbs. Okay, thanks, Ricky. Simon, do you want to well, I, mean, I think that's all, that together? That's all um, helpful advice, and I'd like to think that it's, uh, the, these are things that we all already have recognized and have plans to address. The only thing I think Boris would be horrified uh, to hear that you don't think he's a natural booster. He was, he's one of the most tiggerish people you could ever meet, and if there's anyone who's sort of best placed to kind of jolly London along through the painful times ahead and keep people going and drive us forward, I think it is Boris Johnson. Right, well, um, he's certainly uh, taken his newspaper article today in the Daily Telegraph to jolly Barack Obama along, I notice. Uh, no, no failure to intervene in another country's politics for him. Anyway, um, I'd like to thank our key speaker tonight, Simon Milton, who has given us a very clear and rounded view about the way the new Mayor of London is taking to his task energetically uh, to reshape the city as it emerges into something different as the economy changes after a big political change. I'd also like to thank Dan Sujic and uh, Ricky Burdett for their uh, opening and closing contributions, and of course all of you for coming this evening and for your questions. So thank you all very much. And um, when's the next one, Ricky? It's on the 18th of November, and it's Peter Hendy. Do come back on the 18th of November to hear the Transport Commissioner, uh, Peter Hendy, who will be continuing and will be the next in the series. So thank you all, and thank you, Simon. Welcome.